Welcome to another deep dive episode of the Compass Christian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. This is where we will dig deeper into the content from Sunday's sermon, consider even more ways of thinking about the Bible and how to live it, and encourage one another to follow Jesus more closely together. I'm your host, Will Barlow. Let's dive in. Well, welcome back to another Deep Dive. This week, we're going to be combining materials from the past two sermons, Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, which was called Alive Together with Christ, and Ephesians 2, 6 through 10, which I called A Community of Grace. So I'm going to recap here, but let's start by reading the whole passage. Uh, again, I'll be reading from the ESV and putting in y'alls for the use to highlight how this is all communal. It's all plural. Every you is plural in the book of Ephesians. So starting in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And y'all were dead in the trespasses and sins in which y'all once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, y'all have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace y'all have been saved through faith, and this is not y'all's own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's a beautiful Beautiful section. Two weeks ago, we saw that there are three things that try to separate us from God that are talked about in the first three verses of this chapter. The first one is the course or age of this world. The second one is the prince of the power of the air. And the third is the passions of our flesh. So what Paul is describing here is a whole system of evil that's put in place to keep people from God as much as possible. And so in response to that evil, in response to humanity's deadness, God reached out to us with his grace, his love, his mercy, and he made us alive together with Christ. And not only did he make us truly alive, we saw, we read ahead a little bit to verse 6, we saw the exalted status that we got as sons and daughters of God, that we have an inheritance and we have privileges associated with that inheritance. So we are too enthroned. We are exalted with Christ alongside Christ. So that's what we saw two weeks ago. Last week, we spent a great deal of time unpacking and exploring the concepts of grace and gifts in the ancient world. We saw that Judaism was a religion of grace, just like Christianity is a religion of grace. We saw that the typical way that we think about gifts in the modern Western world uh, is not an accurate portrayal of gift giving in the ancient world. And specifically, the idea of giving the best gift being a gift with no strings attached, this is just simply a modern Western perspective on gift giving. Even in the modern East, many countries of the world you can go to where a gift would imply some sort of return. And that's why people will give you gifts. If you go to other countries, they'll give you gifts in the hopes that you will give them more back. Um, so in the ancient world, uh, the idea of gifts was really about establishing a relationship. Give giving was about establishing a relationship. So we did spend a good deal amount of time on that on Sunday. We will examine it a little bit further here in a little bit. Now, 
that's a recap of what we actually covered in the sermon. I want to go deeper into some of these concepts I didn't have as much time for on Sunday. So let's start with the first couple of verses. Uh, I mentioned briefly that there is a controversy around the phrase by nature in Ephesians 2.3. And I mentioned that uh, on Sunday that how you interpret the phrase depends largely on your theological view of what's called original sin. So the idea of original sin, if you're unfamiliar with that term, it's basically the answer to the question, what happened with Adam and Eve? How did, how did what happened with Adam and Eve change our reality as human beings? So the resource that I recommend if you want to look into this more is Sean Finnegan's work, uh, Brother Sean's work, that is available on his Restitutio website. And I'll provide a link in the show notes for his articles on this subject. He also preached a subject uh, preached this sur- a subject in a sermon at his church. So, uh, and he also recorded a couple uh, podcast episodes on Restitutio on the subject. So, there's a lot of resources available for you on Restitutio should you be interested in um, hamartiology is the technical term, uh, a doctrine of sin, uh, specifically original sin. So, Pastor Sean, he lays out in this article and all the other resources that he has worked on on it, he lays out four different uh, main views on original sin. They are called realism, federalism, corruption only, and no guilt, no corruption. So we're going to go through each one of these in turn and just very briefly describe them. And again, if you want more information, there's so much information that, that Sean has available on Restitutio if you want to dig into this deeper. So let's start with realism. Realism is the idea that we all participated in the sin of Adam. In other words, we were in Adam. That's biblical language from 1 Corinthians. We were in Adam when he sinned. So Sean quoted Alva Huffer, who said it this way, quote, The guilt of Adam's sin is imputed to every member of the human race. Every person, therefore, is born a sinner under condemnation and in need of salvation. As Levi was in Abraham and paid tithes to Melchizedek, Hebrews 7, so every man was in Adam and participated in that first human sin. Every man is charged with the guilt and penalty of that original sin he committed in Adam. End quote. So on this view, everyone is born into the world condemned in sin. Now, Again, proponents of this realism view draw heavily from 1 Corinthians 15.22, the idea of being in Adam, and then also Romans 5.12-19. And that's a battleground section for this topic just generally. So everyone's going to want to be able to either point to this and make it a strength for their view, or if it's a weakness for their view, they're going to want to be able to explain Romans 5.12-19. That's really the, a, a primary uh, passage for us on this subject. All right, so that's a little bit about Realism. The second view is federalism. In federalism, Adam represented humanity as our federal head. So he sinned on behalf of all of us. So Sean, for this section, quotes Millard Erickson, quote, Adam was on probation for us all, as it were, and because Adam sinned, all of us are treated as guilty and corrupted. Bound by the covenant between God and Adam, we are treated as if we have actually and personally done what he as our representative did, end quote. Sean points out that one advantage of this view is that it can handle the parallelism between Adam and Christ rather well. So just as Christ obeyed God on our behalf, Adam disobeyed God on our behalf. So there seems to be a pretty good parallelism there. The, the problem with, or one main problem with federalism is that it appears to be unjust. As Sean points out, How fair is it, let's imagine that you committed a crime, how fair would it be for your crimes to be imputed on your two-year-old daughter? How fair would that be? I think we can all see that there's a concern there. It's called a a justice worry or justice concern. So there are problems with federalism as well. The third view is called corruption only. This view challenges the view that we are guilty of Adam's actual offense 
And the way that the people that believe in corruption only uh, get at that is they cite numerous scriptures that explicitly condemn the idea that the guilt of a father passes on to a son. So they'll, they'll quote passages like Deuteronomy 24, 16, Jeremiah 31, 30, Ezekiel 18, verses 4, 17, and 20. Now, all of these passages have something in common. They all say that the people who commit the sin will face their own consequences. And several of them specifically say that the children do not get the consequences of their fathers. So this would seem to um, push back against the first two views that we looked at briefly. So people seem to be condemned according to those scriptures for their own sins, not for the sins of others. However, we do have a corrupted nature. We do live in a corrupted environment. So the person who believes in corruption only would also say that we are born technically innocent However, we are likely to sin and then receive the guilt of that sin once we do sin. So that is the corruption-only view, which is the view that Sean Finnegan favors. And in the spirit of full disclosure, I think it's the one that makes the most sense to me right now as I stand. But definitely still open on this, still thinking about it. The final view is called No Guilt, No Corruption. This view is actually interesting. It has a long history in the Christian church. It's associated with a, a view that has been considered heretical. Uh, the name of the view, in case you want to Google it for more information, it's called Pelagianism, after Pelagius, the guy who forwarded it in the early church, who argued for it in the early church. So this view stresses that we all have free will to either do good or do evil. Uh, we're all born into the world just as Adam and Eve were born into the world. We're born with the ability to choose between good and evil. However, the one difference that we have that Adam and Eve didn't have is our environment is not untainted as theirs was. So they do see, the people with no guilt, no corruption, they do see that the environment at least has changed um, a little bit uh, with uh, what happened with Adam and Eve and then what happens with us. The, there, there are systems around us. There are things around us that, that can lead us to, toward making a bad choice, but we still have the ability to make that choice for good always. Now, one major problem with this view is that it has to hold, theoretically, that it is possible for a morally perfect unbeliever to exist. So you could have like a Buddhist who never really commits a sin, or you could have... Um, you know, someone who has a uh, another view, possibly, um, uh, an atheist, perhaps, that never commits a sin and never actually sins against God and never is guilty if they always ask, uh, act altruistically and they act with, with love and that sort of a thing, uh, then you could end up with someone who uh, never, uh, never sins. And so I think that seems to contradict Romans 5 and it contradicts other passages that highlight that the sin problem is a universal problem, that all humans experience sin. Um, and so as a practical matter, uh, they, they might tell you, well, yes, as a practical matter, everyone does sin, uh, but they have to hold this theoretical possibility of a morally perfect unbeliever. And I think that's, that's a pretty big problem with this view. So those are the four views, um, the four major views on original sin. Um, let's now think about a couple different options for what by nature means specifically in Ephesians 2, 3. So scholars are divided, like I said, on what that by nature in Ephesians 2, 3 really means. Um, here's what Lynn Kohick says. And Lynn, Lynn Kohick, um, she's the one who's done the New International Commentary on the New Testament. We've quoted her quite a bit in our series on Ephesians. She's been very helpful. And so this is what she says about by nature. Quote, Paul adds that we are children of wrath by nature. This noun does not in itself suggest wickedness, and there is no reason to assume Paul hints at Adam's sin. He uses it to speak of Gentile idolatry and ignorance, Romans 1, 18-32, as well as the natural order, Romans 1, 6, 26, 1 Corinthians eleven fourteen, or birth, Galatians 2, 15. Perhaps Paul implies a comparison with the metaphor of adoption in Ephesians 1.5, differentiating the unregenerate 
who by birth are part of the human race from those adopted children of God, end quote. So she doesn't believe that we have to even invoke original sin here. Uh, it could be a comparison with the metaphor of adoption, uh, highlighting the people who are part of God's people versus the people that are not part of God's people. I think that's an interesting perspective uh, on this passage. Now, I'm going to contrast that with what Clinton Arnold said in the Zondervan Illustrated Biblical Backgrounds Commentary. And again, Clint Arnold is another one of our old friends here in Ephesians. We've been using his commentary a lot. And so um, here they have a slightly different perspective on this section. This is what Arnold says, quote, The cravings of our sinful nature. This third form of evil influence is literally translated the lusts of our flesh. Central to Jewish thinking among the rabbis of the, at the time of Paul was the notion that every person struggled with an inner propensity towards evil. They called this the Yetzer Chra, the evil impulse. Paul spoke of this impulse as the flesh, Sarks, and conceived of it as a power welling up from within the person, prompting him or her to act in ways displeasing to God. End quote. So here, you have this Jewish idea of the evil impulse that's inside of us, certainly could have been related to some view on original sin, although Arnold doesn't get into that. His commentary is mostly focused on the ancient worldviews at play here. And so here we have sort of two different views of it. And again, you can sort of see if you take different perspectives on original sin, how that would affect your reading of this passage as well. So again, I'm going to leave it to you, dear listener, to make a decision for yourself, whether you like what Arnold said or what Kohik said or something else, and then which of the four views you like. Um, I tend to like Kohik's perspective on it, although I think that Arnold's perspective is helpful in understanding the context, the thought world that Paul was in, that he was swimming in. I'm going to transition now to our next thing that we want to dive deeper into. Um, I want to skip ahead to the next sermon. And again, we talked a lot about grace and gift giving. Uh, there were, uh, there's one smaller thing that I want to talk about here briefly, and that is verse 7. Ephesians 2, 7 uses the word kindness. Kindness. And we tend to, I, I think... Um, trivialize that word into something that's, you know, sort of basic. And Lynn Kohick has, I think, an excellent quote on why we should think a little bit deeper about this word kindness. Uh, this is her quote, quote, we tend to think of being kind as being nice, polite, with a hint of superficiality. Yet the term used in 2.7 accents moral excellence and magnanimity. This term cautions the reader today who may be tempted to intellectualize God's grace to a propositional abstraction, for in the broader Greek context, the term carries the sense of clemency. I emphasize this aspect of the term because in the following verse, Paul states that salvation is God's gift. Paul's overarching message is that salvation is God's doing. In Christ, without human engineering. Kindness has traces of gift-giving around it, which prepares the reader for the coming announcement concerning our salvation by grace through faith, end quote. So, you know, kindness has this idea of moral excellence, of God's uh, graciousness, and his sense of clemency, as she said, his willingness to pardon us through his grace. And so, um, it's preparing us, that word in the ancient world would have prepared them to receive this idea of salvation as a gift. And so uh, kindness works within the greater context of gift giving as we described it on Sunday. God is the ultimate gift giver and he's given us the best gift possible, that gift of Christ. And he's done it through his grace, his mercy, his love, and yes, his kindness. I wanted to dig a little bit deeper, springboarding off of kindness. I want to talk about gift giving a little bit more directly. 
we talked about this a lot on Sunday, and so I don't want to beat a dead horse over and over and over again. But I do want to point out that there is a lot of scholarship that has pointed toward the dynamic between a benefactor or a patron and then the client or the person who receives the gift, the person who receives the blessing or the benefit. So in the ancient world, I'm going to sort of paint the picture for you here. The basic concept is that you would have a wealthy individual. That would be your patron. That would be your benefactor. And the client would be someone in the lower classes, someone who is possibly poor, possibly a freed slave, possibly someone of a marginalized group or a marginalized ethnicity, um, someone who is on the fringes of society, okay? Now, the rich patron would give a gift to the poor person, and it was assumed, it was in the culture, it was absolutely assumed that the poor person would never be able to repay the gift in kind. They were poor, they were marginalized, there's nothing that they could do to actually repay the gift in kind. So, you know, again, wealthy uncle gives you $10,000, you don't have a penny to your name, you're not gonna be able to give that $10,000 back unless you just like literally don't accept the gift. <laughs> so um, anyway, that's the picture we've got here. But the idea was they were, as we saw on Sunday, there was a response that was expected. There was an expected response to a gift. And the way that they could repay the patron was through loyalty, respect, and thankfulness. Um, so in, in some parts of the world, for example, even in modern times, people will give gifts and then they'll expect you to like vote for them for city council or something. Like, and we would think of that as like uh, messing with an election or bribery or something like that, but this is just a very common practice in the ancient world and in some parts of the world still exists today. And so I think we can see the connection to what Paul is saying again here in Ephesians chapter two. The reason, again, I'll say it again, I think this is so important, that the reason for giving a gift in the ancient world, especially when the status between parties is extreme, was to initiate a relationship. And so I think this is helpful for us because we look at God, God's one party in this transaction. He's the owner of heaven and earth. He has essentially unlimited resources. He is our benefactor. He is our patron. We are the ones who were dead in trespasses and sins. We were, you know, there's nothing we could do to deserve the gift. And so Jesus, our Lord, he acts as uh, the broker of this transaction, the agent of the gift. He was the gift and he was also the agent of that gift. He had to do what he did to make sure that the transaction goes through. And so I think this is all really helpful for us to think about Think about it from that perspective of God giving us a gift that we totally didn't deserve. There's nothing we did to initiate that relationship. He gives us Christ initiating that relationship with us. He makes us alive so that we can have a real vibrant relationship with him. And the way that he does that is through Christ. You know, so God acts in Christ to give us a gift. And he, in return, because he's given us Christ... First of all, we have additional responsibility because we can live the way that God wants us to live, okay? And ultimately what that means is he wants us to fellowship with him. He wants us to have a relationship with him. He wants to regain what he lost in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. He wants a family. He wants a community of people who want to be with him. And so we can see that there is a implied response, if you will, to the gift that he's given us in Christ. God wants us to trust him. He wants us to grow in our trust, grow in our faith, and he wants us to help others receive this gift as well. God wants us to share this gift with others. So again, for more information on this, I recommend Barclay's book, Paul and the Gift, which is his like 600 plus, almost 700 pages um, treatment of it. There's also a shorter version called Paul and the Power of Grace that Barclay wrote. And then there are other many other resources that mention the scholarship, including many review articles. If you just Google Barclay, Paul and the Gift reviews, you'll come up with articles that will give you shorter versions of it. 
Of course, you can watch if you are into more multimedia than reading alone, then I recommend you go on YouTube and you type in Barclay Paul and the Gift reviews. There are review videos, there are interview videos with Barclay. They're all uh, really helpful to, to help understand this idea of grace and gift giving. So I'm not gonna beat that dead horse anymore. <laughs> we're gonna transition uh, to our last subject. It's where we're gonna spend the majority of our deep dive this week. And that is, I want to spend more time on the subject of good works. Now, this is something I just glossed over on Sunday. I spent all my time talking about uh, grace and gift giving. But um, I wanted to spend some time talking about this idea of good works. I think it's incredibly important for us as Christians to understand good works. So I want to stress that in the context of Ephesians chapter 2, I think that there are two things that are primary to this context as opposed to the general New Testament discussion of good works. Uh, first, we have a context where evil is presented as a system involving multiple layers. That's in verses 1 through 3. Now, second, the whole discourse here in Ephesians, the whole context, is about the community response, not our individual responses. Although, you know, we're all part of the community. We all have to do our part in the community, but this is a community response. So we're going to frame our thinking when we come back to Ephesians at the end of talking about the New Testament says about good works. We're going to come back to these two contextual pieces um, because I think it's important for us to remember that what Ephesians might be saying might be slightly more um, one direction or another than what the other uh, New Testament documents say about good works. So... I'm not going to say everything that the New Testament has to say about good works, but we're going to go through a lot of examples. So the first one I want to talk about is in John 10, 32. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from my Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? So here in this verse, Jesus describes his ministry as full of good works. He says he's done many good works. Well, what are the kinds of things that the Bible portrays Jesus as doing? portrays him as forgiving sins, for healing people, uh, he's casting out demons, he's raising the dead, he's teaching people, he's ministering to people uh, more generally, and that is all considered good works. So there definitely is uh, or can be more of a charismatic uh, flair to this where you're talking about the power of God being in operation. Uh, those can be totally, those can be good works. Okay, that's one perspective on good works. What's interesting is the rest of the New Testament um, shows a different perspective of, new, uh, of good works. In Acts 9, verses 36 and 39, it describes um, a disciple named Tabitha or Dorcas. And what that, that, those verses say, Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room, all the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. So the Bible doesn't mention anything specific about these good works and acts of charity other than Tabitha or Dorcas was uh, full of good works. And that's in the context of these tunics and other garments that she made. That's the only thing that gets specifically mentioned. So what this looks like, we don't have the full story, obviously, but what it looks like is she like knitted clothes for the poor people in her community. <laughs> you know, like she, she made clothes for, you know, we have this picture of this like grandmotherly figure who has just knitting for people in her spare time and praying for them probably too, right? And so, you know, we're talking about things like making clothes. We're talking about giving to the poor. That's what Acts 9 means when it says she was full of good works and acts of charity. This isn't the only time this type of thing gets mentioned especially in relationship uh, to women in the church. In 1 Timothy 5, verses 9 and 10, it says, Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. And then it goes on to list those good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. So here in 1 Timothy, good works is described as raising children, especially successfully, <laughs> showing hospitality, 
serving other Christians in love. I mean, literally, she could have, be, she could have washed the feet, but we could take this metaphorically as well. Uh, caring for the afflicted, caring for the poor and the less fortunate. Uh, this is the description that we get of someone having a reputation for good works. I think this is important for people in the church to understand that good works is more than just casting out spirits or raising the dead or healing someone. And those are good works. I'm not trying to minimize that. But, you know, I'm a, I'm a father of young children. My wife should know that what she does on a daily basis of bringing up children, that that is called by God a good work. So moms out there listening to this podcast, I just want to encourage you and speak some life into you that what you are doing means so much to our Father and to our Lord Jesus Christ. It means so much. It is a good work that you are doing. Paul, later in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he addresses rich people. And when he addresses rich people, there's a slightly different nuance towards good works. In verse 17, he says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So here in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul uses the phrase good works to describe wealthy Christians being ready to give to poor Christians in positions of need in the financial realm. This is talking about financial giving. It should be willing to uh, share, ready to share, generous. Paul later in the book of Titus, he mentions good works throughout the book of Titus. And the book of Titus talks a lot about good works. It describes good works in great detail. We're not going to go to any of the verses in Titus, but I encourage you. Our men's group has been going through a book called the Titus 10 that is based on the book of Titus and 10 principles of godly man, uh, being a godly man that can be found in the book of Titus. And so I encourage you to read it, men, women, children, everyone, read the book of Titus. There's a lot we can learn. It's a short book. It's a quick read. Um, but the idea that gets presented in the book of Titus is that the gospel, the message of Christ, the message of the kingdom, the message of how all this fits together, how Jesus has changed the world, this should change us into people who are zealous for good works, as Paul says in Titus 2.14. Now, different times when Paul talks about and he describes good works, this is the type of thing that Paul describes. He includes things like dignified behavior, sobriety, both you know, abstaining from excess alcohol or drug use, but also metaphorical sobriety, uh, being sober-minded, self-control, sound in the faith, sound in love, steadfastness on the truth, purity, kindness, honesty, hardworking, not speaking evil, avoiding quarreling, gentleness, and courtesy towards others. This might be a surprising list for some of us, but Paul's concern throughout the book of Titus is that outsiders would see how Christians live life and then they'd be interested in the gospel. When they see you do something, interact with someone, and you forgive them instead of rendering evil for evil. That gets people's attention, right? And so here the idea is the gospel transforms us into people who are zealous for good works. When we do these simple things that the Spirit of God helps us with, uh, these seemingly small practical things um, should help us to be beacons that lead others to Christ. That's what Paul generally means by good works in the book of Titus. Now, there's a couple of other passages uh, that don't use the exact phrase good works, but I think display the concept. I'm going to read James 2, verses 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? 
If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So here James is talking about works, which I think we can understand as good works. And in the context here, it's about helping other Christians, other believers who are less fortunate with things like food and clothing, the necessities of life. And John, in 1 John chapter 3, has a similar section. Verses 16 through 18 say this, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our life lives for the brothers. But if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. In verse 18, that word for deed is the same word for works that we've been looking at this whole time. So loving indeed is, I would think, doing good works. And here again, that is defined as taking care of those less fortunate in the Christian community when we have the power to do so. So again, it's sort of in more of the physical day-to-day -day kind of category. So again, sort of encapsulating what we've seen in our brief survey of good works in the New Testament, there are a variety of ways to look at good works. Certainly, you could talk about showing God's power by healing people, uh, casting out a, a spirit, uh, teaching powerfully, uh, helping people experience forgiveness of sins. You know, all these things are good works. But helping the poor, providing food, clothing and shelter to other Christians in need, that's also good works. That gets talked about on like five or six different occasions. Also, part of good works is living transformed lives so that outsiders are intrigued by our faith through our forgiveness, our mercy, our love, our discipline, our courtesy, and so much more. That's good works too. And we saw that practical day-to-day -day things like being a mom and raising children and showing hospitality, that's, those are good works too. So there's a whole broad spectrum of things that we can think about when we think about good works. So I want to reread the whole passage again, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And then we're going to conclude by thinking some more about these good works. And y'all were dead in the trespasses and sins in which y'all once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace y'all have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace y'all have been saved through faith, and this is not y'all's own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So verses 1 through 3 again portray the system of evil, the course or the age of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the passions of our flesh. Now, in order to effectively combat this system of evil, these things that are listed here in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we need a system of good works. And that's what, what Paul is describing in verse 10. God has enabled us with his spirit. We can actually do it. We can be God's masterpiece collectively, God's workmanship collectively together created in Christ Jesus, this new humanity. We've been created for good works that God's preparing beforehand that we together should walk in them. So the idea here is God has enabled us with the Spirit. We can actually do the things that Jesus did during his ministry. 
Um, I recently picked up a book called Kingdom Ethics, Following Jesus in Contemporary Context. It was written by two Christian ethicists, uh, Stassen and Gushy. And I want to read to you a quote from their preface. They talk about this problem. The problem is, is that Christianity uh, somewhat understands what Jesus taught, but they don't really live it. They They've lost part of the message because it's not being acted out. This is what they say in their preface. Quote, here's the problem. Christian churches across the theological and confessional spectrum and Christian ethics as an academic discipline that serves the churches are often guilty of evading Jesus, the cornerstone and center of the Christian faith. Specifically, the teachings and practices of Jesus, especially the largest block of his teachings, the Sermon on the Mount, are routinely ignored or misinterpreted in the preaching and teaching ministry of the churches and in Christian scholarship and ethics. This evasion of the concrete teachings of Jesus has seriously malformed Christian moral practices, moral beliefs, and moral witness. Jesus taught that the test of our discipleship is whether we act on his teachings, whether we put into practice his words. This is what it means to build our house on rock, Matthew 7, 24, end quote. So in the rest of their book, Stassen and Gushy give insight into how to think about and live the Sermon on the Mount, as well as the other teachings of Jesus, in harmony with the rest of Scripture. And so thinking about this, you know, we want to return to the question, well, what does this look like? You know, I get, I get that we're supposed to be a system that does good. We're supposed to be God's masterpiece, his workmanship. You know, we're supposed to be this new humanity of people. You know, what, what does it look like? And I want to say that it can look like a lot of different things. There's a lot of different ways we can experience it. And I want to give a couple of examples of it being lived out by people throughout time in the Christian faith. In the early, in the time of the early church, the culture was very uh, harsh towards orphans and widows and neglected peoples. And orphans in particular were considered to be like discarded people. They lacked rights. There was no financial mobility or social mobility. Uh, very, you know, it's very rare that someone would go from being poor to being rich, uh, especially in one generation. That was almost unheard of. You'd have to, you know, really catch the attention of someone wealthy or something like that for something crazy like that to happen. But the early church did not treat orphans as discarded people. The early church cared for orphans, taking them in and providing them with the resources to live. Similarly, the early church was active in taking care of widows. We saw Paul's exhortation toward that in 1 Timothy 5. In the ancient world, women did not have the same legal rights or economic flexibility as they do in modern America. And think about even in modern America, how women have a hard time, especially if they're widows and single moms. You know, those two situations, they're still very difficult in modern America, where uh, there isn't quite as much of a caste system like there was in ancient Rome. And there you know, were, are more legal protections for women in modern times and so on. So to have a larger support structure was absolutely necessary in the ancient world. And who provided that support structure? It was the Christians. Christians supported orphans. Throughout history, Christians have started more orphanages than any other group. Um, we, we, we take care of the marginalized people in society. To this day, if you go to Africa, you find a real legitimate orphanage. It's probably run by a Christian. Very, very strong, uh, uh, overwhelming majority of orphanages are run by Christians. In one of his sermons on Ephesians, Tim Mackey gives a more modern example from um, relatively modern Germany with the name of a, the man, the name of the man that he talks about is, uh, and his son actually, they both have the same name, is Friedrich von Bodelschwing. And so they, uh, the elder Friedrich and the younger Friedrich started this group called the Bethel Foundation or the Bethel Institute. Um, there's different names people give for it. Uh, but this institution still takes care of people to this day. It's still around, but it was started in the uh, 1800s, I believe, late 1800s, 
to take care of children with birth defects. Um, it was very limited in scope in the beginning and they kept expanding services to more and more people who were physically and mentally disabled. Now, you may have never heard of the uh, von Bodelschwings. I never heard of them either. So, you know, whatever, They're, you know, people don't know as much about them, but the next name I'm gonna mention is a bigger name and that name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor, scholar, who was incarcerated and ultimately killed by the Nazis uh, during Nazi Germany. He, um, he was uh, heavily protesting uh, what the Nazi regime was doing. He was one of our brothers who stood up in the face of that adversity and he fought back the way that he could. But before all the, the stuff with the Nazis went down, he visited the Bethel community and it was, he just loved it. He thought it was fantastic. Um, now, by the time the Bonhoeffer visited Bethel, it had been around for uh, 30 or 40 years. This was in the late uh, 1920s, uh, early 30s. And it was a town, basically, with churches. It had schools, homes, and it was all for orphans, especially those with physical or mental disabilities. And you think about it in contrast with the Nazi view of power, the Nazi view of strength, the Nazi view of life. Um, the Nazi regime was about eugenics, about a perfect race. And so they, uh, they would kill people that they thought were not the perfect person. So they, they notably killed Jews, but they also killed hundreds of thousands of disabled people. They called them mercy killings because these people would, should rather have been dead than ever born with a disability. It's unbelievable what these Nazis did, what they believed, but yet that is what they did and that's what they believed. And um, so Bonhoeffer saw Bethel as this amazing contradiction uh, to what the Nazis were doing. An amazing, I mean, how polar opposite are these two views of the world, uh, the Nazi view and the view of Christ, the view of taking care of and honoring those who are orphans, especially those with disabilities. It's unbelievable the difference between the two views. Um, so it's very, very prominent in Bonhoeffer's mind to see what they were doing at Bethel. Now you can imagine that when the Nazis came to power that they knocked on Friedrich's door, uh, the younger Friedrich, the older Friedrich had passed away a long time ago, before even before World War I. So the younger Friedrich had been running Bethel for a long time at this point. And the Nazis did. They, came, they kept knocking on Bethel's door. They wanted to turn, uh, him to turn over the children in his care. And he, even though he received death threats, he always refused. He fought the Nazis and he, he told them that they could not come in and destroy his community. He protected the weak and the slighted and the powerless that were in his charge. And the story ends in sort of a poignant way. He he survives through World War II. Um, he dies in his 70s in early 1946, not even a full year after the Nazis had been defeated. And as Tim Mackey points out, how else would he have died than just by sheer fatigue? But when I think about Friedrich, the younger Friedrich, this was a man who fought a good fight. This was a man who finished his course. What an example that is for us today. It's so humbling to think that there are people that have come before us who have lived Ephesians 2.10, who have built these communities of hope, of peace, of love, of grace in such opposition against such power and strength and terror that was wielded by these Nazis, how he fought back and how he won. They never took Bethel over. And the Bethel Foundation survives to today where it still helps more than 14,000 people in clinics, in homes, in schools, in groups, other facilities. Both Friedrichs, but especially the younger one, fought the course of the world. He fought the prince of the power of the air he fought the passions of the flesh as revealed in the Nazi evil 
And he did it by building a system of good, a system of peace, a system of love, a system of grace. That's what he did. He built, it was a community that he built. And so my exhortation to us is that we should want to be a functioning part of a larger system of good, of peace, of love, of grace. And to do that, we have to plug in to wherever God is already doing good work wherever we live. Of course, here in Louisville, I hope that Compass Christian Church, the church that we're, we're building, is a part of that. But we've already started partnerships here in Louisville with organizations like Wayside Christian Mission, like Spark Hope, and Lifehouse Maternity Home. And just to briefly describe them, uh, Way- Wayside Christian Mission is a homeless mission that serves many people in downtown Louisville. They provide food and housing, life skills training, and transitional housing when people are ready to leave uh, the shelter and move on and get a job and, and move on back to regular life. They get transitional housing, and it's great. It's a fantastic program. They serve all sorts of meals during the week, uh, take care of so many people. Um, it's really a remarkable enterprise, and we've been, we've been thankful to volunteer with them um, since we began as a church. Spark Hope. Um, is the Single Parent Resource Center. It's a resource for single parents. Uh, They like to describe themselves as a hand up, not a hand out. Uh, They help single parents with support so they can go to school, um, either get their GED if they don't have their high school diploma or get like a degree in nursing or something else like that where they can earn a living. Or um, some that are just working and are not currently going to school, they help them maximize their finances and so they support these, um, these single parents, both um, moms and dads, by providing food and other supplies. And they help connect these single parents to other resources that can help them. Uh, Lifehouse Maternity Home. Uh, this is the one that we, we just uh, found out about recently and have been thankful to partner with them a little bit and hope to do more in the future. Uh, they are a safe home where women and teens in crisis can find hope and healing. These are women, young women, and, uh, and fully grown women who are uh, dealing with what we would call at-risk pregnancies. They're at risk for uh, what would normally be considered a situation where abortion would be considered. And they provide uh, food, clothing, shelter, and other supplies to women dealing with these kinds of pregnancies. Um, and they've, they've had um, almost 100 babies that have been born under their care um, since they started uh, operating. And so I just want to point out that these three places that we're partnering with, these are places that are building communities of, of, of good, communities of peace, love, and grace. And so those of us in Louisville have a great opportunity to partner with these groups and support them. And so for those of you that live elsewhere, I encourage you to find similar places in your local community. Find them, help them, help to build these communities of grace that are full of good works that God has before ordained that we should walk in them. All right, that's enough for this deep dive this week. Thanks for joining us on this deep dive. I want to close by thanking Dave Tench for his musical contributions and Paula Ely for her help with design and editing. We'll catch you next time. Let's continue to follow Jesus together.